Welcome to the Truth Labs podcast with me, Gary Schroeder. In his book, The God Delusion, atheist Richard Dawkins says, I have found it an amusing strategy when asked whether I am an atheist to point out that the questioner is also an atheist when considering Zeus, Apollos, Amun-Ra, Mithras, Baal, Thor, Wotan, the Golden Calf, and the Flying Spaghetti Monster. I just go one god further. So chapter 5. What is the difference between God and a flying spaghetti monster? To the book. If you've never heard of the flying spaghetti monster, the title of this chapter may seem weird. Why should we bother talking about the differences between God and a flying spaghetti monster? How could that be relevant to a discussion about God's existence? As it turns out, the flying spaghetti monster isn't just a random fictional creature. No, no. We wouldn't spend time on that. It's a specific fictional creature that skeptics use to actively promote the idea or the belief in God is silly and unwarranted. The flying spaghetti monster gained its celebrity status in 2005 when 24-year-old Bobby Henderson wrote a satirical letter to the Kansas State Board of Education protesting their decision to allow intelligent design to be taught as an alternative to evolution in public schools. Henderson claimed that the universe was created by a flying spaghetti monster and that the quote overwhelming scientific evidence pointing toward evolutionary process is nothing but a coincidence put in place by him. Henderson went on to describe a silly set of beliefs, for example, that teachers must wear full pirate regalia to teach kids about the religion, and insisted that these beliefs be given equal class time with intelligent design and evolution. The point Henderson wanted to make, of course, was that there's no evidence for the existence of God, so there should be no reason to favor teaching intelligent design over other unjustified idea, over any other unjustified idea, like the one that a flying spaghetti monster created the universe. His letter became a cultural phenomenon, and today the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster has tens of thousands of members all over the world, offers certificates of ordination, sells trinkets and bumper stickers, and encourages people to send in reports of flying spaghetti monster sightings. The flying spaghetti monster may have started out as a statement specifically about the supposed irrelevance of intelligent design theory, but it has taken on a broader identity in popular culture. It now symbolizes the pervasive idea that there's no evidence for God's existence, and that the belief in God, therefore, is ridiculous. All right, let's just keep going through the book, and then we'll add a few comments uh, towards, towards the end. So the next section here in the book, No Evidence for God or a Flying Spaghetti Monster? Question mark. Underlying the Flying Spaghetti Monster idea is the claim that there is no evidence for God's existence just as there is no evidence for the flying spaghetti monster's existence. Recall the evidence itself from chapter 1 doesn't say anything. Okay, this is me, not the book. Remember how we talked about that we're looking for good reasons. There's no proof. We'll come to that in a future chapter, perhaps. 
but there's no proof or disproof. So let's we've got to sharpen our toolkit and how we talk about these things. So we're not looking for proof that doesn't exist. Actually, any naturalistic or any materialistic scientific claim, none of those are ever proof. There's a strong, and in many cases, very, very strong evidence that something is in fact true, but it's not a proof in the sense that a mathematic mathematics can be a proof. But remember that evidence itself doesn't say anything. Okay, in the very simplistic examples we've been using, the ball is in the backyard. That is evidence. That evidence didn't say anything itself, but it is evidence. So we can't discount the evidence, but we also have to realize the evidence itself doesn't say anything. So we have to evaluate the body of evidence that we have before us to make the best conclusion possible. If we get more evidence that counters or that causes us to reconsider the conclusion that we previously came to based on the evidence available at that time, then we would do so. Okay, back to the book. So when we say there is no evidence for or against something, it's shorthand for talking about evidence that people are interpreting as being for or against something. But what if there is no evidence at all to interpret? That's what fans of the spaghetti, the flying spaghetti monster are saying. To illustrate the problems with this claim, imagine I am at your house and I tell you and a friend that I may or may not have put something in a closed room next to you. There are no clues, no evidence to help you determine what, if anything, is in it. Let's say you guess I put a dog in the room and your friend guesses a toy. With absolutely nothing to go on, the two guesses would be equally valid. I could have put any one of a million things in that room or nothing at all. If your friend continues to insist, however, that it has to be a toy, you probably think such a claim is ridiculous. This is kind of the situation the Pastafarians, who are the, the, the followers of this flying spaghetti monster, believe we're in. One in which a claim of God exists is as valid as claiming that a flying spaghetti monster exists because they're both assertions made in the absence of any relevant evidence. And if they're right, we should agree it's a foolish notion to insist that God exists. We don't want to devote our lives to a belief that there is a toy or a dog in the other room when there's no reason to do so. But what if it turns out that there is some evidence to consider? Let's say that before you guess what's inside the room, you investigate the area around it. You notice what looks like dog hair nearby, even though you've, there's never been a dog in the house. Then you notice what looks like paw prints inside your front door. A few minutes later, you hear sounds coming from within the room as if something is alive and scratching around inside. With this evidence in mind, you tell your friend you're confident there's a dog in the room and explain your reasoning. Your friend replies, that is crazy. Those things have nothing to do with what's inside the room. The hair is probably from my dog and just came in from my shirt. Yeah, those so-called paw prints, those could be tracks from someone's shoes. And the sounds, just the air conditioner rattling. We have no way of knowing what, if anything, is in that room since there is no evidence. So in many ways, this discussion is similar to the debate between theists and atheists. 
Theists say that the origin of the universe, development of life, and the nature of our moral understanding are best explained by the existence of a creating, designing, and moral law-giving being consistent with whom we call God. Atheists say that none of those things have anything to do with God. They believe they're best explained by yet an unknown natural mechanism, in the case of the origin of the universe, or by evolutionary theory, in the case of life and our moral understanding. In reality, atheists and theists are looking at and trying to explain the same set of facts about the universe. Contrary to the way atheists make it sound by asserting there is, quote, no evidence, theists are not blindly guessing that God exists. Theists are looking at a set of facts about the universe, again, the same set of facts that atheists are looking at, and are asserting that the existence of God is the best explanation for those facts. Atheists can make their own assertions about what the best explains those facts, but it's disingenuous to claim that theists aren't basing their belief on any evidence at all. So I'll pause here, just a brief commentary. Um, so it's helpful to parse out what the real issue in, in the quote that we gave at the beginning from Richard, Richard Dawkins, what is he actually saying versus kind of actually uh, critically speaking where this chapter is going. So the chapter kind of takes a turn, at least from this book, and, and tries to put the point of emphasis on the notion of someone saying no evidence versus evidence. And I think that that is helpful. I think that that is helpful to just reaffirm this notion that, again, as we just read in the book and we've talked about many times, we if you hear the phrase, no evidence, then based on at least on the introductory conversations we've explored in this part of the podcast series, you have to realize that's not true. That's not true. You cannot say there is no evidence. There is a body of evidence that we can collectively look at and if we are, again, going back to one of the for early chapters, a really important point, if we are not, before we look at the evidence, if we are not already ruling out what the conclusions or what the evidence could, what kind of conclusion the evidence could lead us to, if we're not doing that, then we would at least have to consider in the broadest of terms, and over time we'll, we'll narrow down this definition, but even in the broadest of terms, we would have to say, one of the possibilities is a being, an entity, or a group of entities that are supernatural. If we describe all the evidence, the scenarios around the universe, life beginning, our moral understanding, yes, there are other possible explanations. There are other possible conclusions that a rational person looking at the evidence may arrive at, and they say, no, there's no need to make a leap to something that is supernatural that's that's completely fine and you know we're just introducing or we've just introduced a few of these questions so we have to keep going in our exploration and experimentation to arrive at the truth but there are at least really good these are really good questions and there are at least plausible ways to look at the evidence that we see to arrive at a conclusion that is of something that is consistent with what most people would call, not most people, with what some people would call God. And again, we'll come back to that later. We need to define it. So I just want to underline, underscore, highlight this notion that when you're discussing this with somebody or thinking through it yourself, you have to right away say, if someone says no evidence, you just, you can't, you can't accept that. 
the conclusion to where that evidence leads may, and of course often does, lead to different paths. But you can't contend, you can't say the no evidence part. Where I personally kind of disagree with the chapter is not so much a disagreement, is so much of like where the argument lies. And so I think it, again, it's helpful to just equip us to realize there's good evidence. We should discuss the evidence. We may lead to different conclusions. But what Dawkins is saying is not really evidence versus no evidence. That's not really what he's saying. Uh, He's just saying that the evidence that he looks at makes him, and the conclusions he draws from that evidence is saying that there is no reason to believe in any one of the god or gods that has gone through history. And I would have to say, based on what we've covered in this podcast series so far, just talking about the origin of the universe, the origin of life, the origin of our moral understanding, uh, there's nothing that precludes the conclusion being a flying spaghetti monster. And so I think as people, again, we're, we're in the truth lab here, and I am totally willing to be proven wrong, to be challenged. I know making that claim within the Christian community could be seen as like, what in the world are you talking about, man? That is ludicrous. Well, again, we're just three or four questions in our exploration here. And it, what we've covered so far, there is nothing, nothing, not one thing in what we've covered so far that would preclude the conclusion being that an entity known as the Flying Spaghetti Monster exists. Now, you could make that a little nuanced. You say, well, if this thing is flying and it's composed of a you know, spaghetti, then that is from a materialistic world, and by definition, the person or the thing that created the universe would have to be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. Spaghetti is material, therefore it cannot be the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Totally get it. That's a, that's a valid discussion we could have. But again, the point isn't necessarily the specific flying spaghetti monster, monster that was done in jest um, with, with not much good faith, if you ask my personal opinion. But the conclusion of the person or the thing or the entity that created the universe has to be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, has to be personal in the sense of being able to make a decision and then set things in motion that could from non-life, create life. We went through the the statistics around the improbability of that occurring. But even with the moral law, if we believe there are universal, absolute moral values and moral standards, that has to come from somewhere. And we can explore the conversation that that came from the just naturalistic evolutionary process. But there's good evidence to believe that's not true. And if we're consistent with any other law, we'll use that term in quotes, but even just a legal law, we realize that it comes from a law giver. And every, every, every law that I can think of is an enacting, a legal enactment of morality. It is. If you think about that, we'll cover this in detail on a tangent here. But you should not break into someone's house and steal from them. In most countries, that is a, in their legal system, that is a law. That is a legislation of morality because we believe that is wrong. Murder is wrong. Even your tax system, why do you have this kind of tax system versus another? Because you think it's morally right for certain people to pay a certain percentage of tax where other people do not. So I don't want to go too far in that 
tangent, but all of those three things, the universe, life, the moral understanding, there's nothing that precludes it from being, I don't even know half the, the, the gods or the claims to be gods that Dawkins mentions here, but there's nothing that's inconsistent with any of those arguments. And I think as people that want to be faithful to our exploration of this have to acknowledge that. Now, again, this is you know, only one of the topics that we're covering. So as we get into it, maybe we'll realize, well, there's actually good reason not to believe that Zeus is that universal creator, that spaceless, timeless, immaterial, and personal, right? There may be good reasons for that. But based on what we've covered so far, there's not enough. There's not enough. And so I'll just close with the book. I just think as we're going through the book, I think it's it's prudent to let you all know the, the key points and the conclusions here. But I just wanted to have a little critical commentary. So just we're not reading chapters and acquiescing to whatever the author says. I think it's worthwhile to say, look, really great point. Don't 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 accept when someone says no evidence. We can accept that the evidence leads people to different conclusions. Just like any other scientific inquiry, people can have very different conclusions based on the same evidence. So the no evidence claim, not a good one. Going a step further to saying, to trying to use that to address Dawkins' claim, I think we're going to fall short. And so we need further exploration. But let's go back to the book, the very end here, key points. The flying spaghetti monster symbolizes the pervasive idea that there's no evidence for God's existence. And that belief in God is therefore ridiculous. Ridiculous. Theists, however, are not blindly guessing that God exists. Theists are looking at a set of facts about the universe and are asserting that the best explanation for those facts is the existence of God. Atheists are looking at the same set of facts and are asserting that there are better natural explanations for those facts. Atheists and theists can legitimately disagree over the interpretation of the evidence, but it's disingenuous for atheists to claim that there aren't any basing that theists aren't basing their beliefs on any evidence at all. Okay, so how would we open up this conversation with our kids or others? So here's a here's a recommendation. Imagine that I told you and a friend I may or may not have put something in your bedroom and closed the door. You look around and see no clues, no evidence to help you figure out what, if anything, I put in your room. You guess I put a toy inside, and your friend guesses a pillow. Is one guess better than the other guess? Why or why not? And in parentheses here, explain that neither guesses can be better when there's absolutely no evidence to consider. So how might we advance this conversation still in the book here? Now imagine that I told you a flying spaghetti monster created the world and everything in it. If what I said were true, what kind of evidence for the flying spaghetti monster's existence do you think you'd find in the universe? Be creative. There's no right or wrong answers. In parentheses here, at the conclusion of your discussion, establish that there's no evidence that a flying spaghetti monster exists. So this is me again. This is going back to my critique. Based on the material we've covered so far, I don't think that that conclusion follows. Okay, even if you went through step by step in the cosmological argument, which is the kind of the specific or the formal way of describing the universe argument that we talked through earlier, uh, if we talked through where life began, you talked through the moral understanding, 
the conclusion does not follow that the spaghetti monster, flying spaghetti monster, doesn't exist unless you really try to go, you're really going specific, you know, quote-unquote God by God, and that's the, the real frontal attack is flying spaghetti monster, and your conclusion or part of the, the conclusion of the cosmological argument was that this entity that created everything needs to be immaterial. And you say, well, spaghetti is material. If this entity is created from material, but, but the person or the thing needs to be immaterial, then you could rule out the flying spaghetti monster. But all you would have to do is saying, you know, flying energy source monster, right? And then that would be still consistent with all the evidence we've seen in the cosmological argument. So back to the book. Some people say believing in God is like believing in a flying spaghetti monster because there's no evidence that either exists. Based on what you learn in chapters 2 through 4, do you think that is a good or bad comparison? So based on what we covered here, you know, I kind of gave you some information but didn't really lead down a particular path other than these two notions that don't say there's no evidence, there is evidence, but also to realize that if we're trying to address Dawkins' claim based on the chapters we've covered thus far, not necessarily Dawkins, but anyone mentioning or trying to challenge you based on the similar thing that, hey, we're all atheist, but he just goes one step further. And I would say that's true. That is true. And I think it's disingenuous on an atheist side to say there's no evidence, but I think it's disingenuous on a theist or a Christian side to just wholesale disregard what someone would say that uh, say to that. So in other words, you know, are you an atheist related to uh, the Islamic notion of Allah, yes you are, or Zeus, or <laughs> Apollo, Amun-Ra, Mithras, Thor, right? And like, do you believe in the god Thor? And it's like, no, you don't. You know, if you're a Christian, no, you don't. And so you are an atheist regard with regards to that god. And if you could catalog Every belief, every god that has ever, or gods that have ever been viewed as such throughout all of history, I don't know how many there are, hundreds of thousands, maybe. Um, I don't know, maybe thousands, if we're realistically cataloging them. Um, But of course, even if they weren't, even if the worship of such an entity wasn't, you know, catalyzed, so to speak, by a group of people, you could imagine that anything under the sun could be considered a god. And so with regard to every one of them, you are an atheist. And so I think it's just as we, again, we're entering in, we're trying to live here in the truth lab, trying to create experiments to validate or invalidate our hypotheses. And so we have to acknowledge that based on the material so far, I better not make the claim. I better not make the claim that the logical conclusion is a God consistent with what I know of in the Bible and wholesale disregard any other one that may also be consistent with what we've established so far. So in other words, any God, any any notion of God that is spaceless, timeless, immaterial, and personal could be consistent with those conclusions. So all the evidence we've covered so far in the first three questions, if the conclusion is an entity that is spaceless, timeless, immaterial, and personal, or a group of them, then the conclusions would be would be valid. So hopefully that just gives you some thoughts to think through. Um, again, we'll quickly advance to the next episode, which I think is a really, really important topic because, you know, this episode might leave you kind of like, oh man, I don't know where, where do we, where do we go from here? Well, we go, we go to the next chapter, we go to the next episode. And what we're going to cover there is 
how much evidence do we need to be confident God exists? Okay, so we totally dismantled, I think, this notion of no evidence, and this chapter does an effective job at that. There is evidence. But then we have to say, how much evidence, the quantity, quality, and type of evidence, how much do we need to be confident that God exists? And that's going to be the focal point of our next episode.